John 16, starting in verse 16. I'll give you a second to get there. This is God's Word, written a long time ago, but written with you in mind today. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this? And he says to us, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on this challenging passage. Father, we ask your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name as we're told to do in this passage. And we ask that you would show us your truth as he promises to do in this passage. 
Open our eyes that we might see, our minds that we might understand, but even more, open our hearts that we would believe. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I think about some time you've not been feeling well or whatever, and you go and you see your doctor. And she's sitting there in front of you, and you've talked back and forth and figured out exactly what's going on. And she says, okay, now you're going to feel some pressure. What does she mean when she says, now you're going to feel some pressure? That's doctor speak for, I'm about to hurt you terribly. That's really what it amounts to. Right? I mean, you feel a little pressure, and by that I mean I'm going to tear your arm off and sew, you know, sew it back on or something of the sort. Now, if you've got a good doctor and it's not like a life-threatening thing, the lady sitting in front of you, she's taking care of you, she's probably done a pretty decent job of explaining to you why she's about to hurt you like that. But think about a different kind of experience. Maybe you go to the doctor and you you come in and you're complaining about foot pain. Man, it's been bothering you. And the the gentleman sitting across from you, the doctor says, all right, give me your hand. You're going to feel some pressure. And he pretends to bend your fingers backwards until they break. It's not really a positive experience, one, because your fingers are being bent backwards, and that's not okay. But more so even because you don't have a frame of reference for why it hurts. You see, the difference between the first doctor is she does a good job of explaining to you why I'm going to hurt you. The poor doctor, not only is he doing poor medicine, but he hasn't explained to you why. Why are you going to feel some pressure? Why is it going to hurt so badly? Interestingly, Jesus here, very much like this perfect doctor, is explaining to his disciples in this passage why things are about to hurt so badly. They're about to feel some pressure in the next handful of hours, and not just of a physical kind. They're going to fear for their lives. They're going to watch their master be murdered. They're going to flee. They're going to have all kinds of uh, troubles and trials of faith and body and mind and soul and such. And he explains it to him here. And the best part is that he doesn't just say, oh, by the way, this is going to happen. Your foot's broken. I've got to set it. It's going to hurt. Or your shoulder's out of socket. It's been dislocated. This is really going to hurt. He explains to them, instead of what are the long-term kind of benefits, the consequences of what this weekend is going to bring. And it's important, too, because as you got at the end of the passage, hopefully you paid attention, you heard it read, uh, the disciples were like, oh, you're finally speaking clearly. It's not often they say that. It's funny, in preaching land where I live, a weird place to live, but there's so many books and such like, learn to preach and teach like Jesus. You do realize he spoke that way on purpose so they wouldn't understand him. In fact, actually, they're not supposed to understand him until he dies. And I really don't want to preach in such a way that you don't understand me until I die. But here they are, they're in the upper room, and he's been uh, Passover with them and been explaining to them and done here some of the most intimate, some of the most focused, and some of the most pointed teaching that he does for his disciples. And he's equipping them specifically for his death. The next chapter is one of the most intimate and tender portrayals of our Savior. 
But here he turns to this great topic of difficulty. He's been talking about persecution that's following. Uh, He's been talking about all of the difficult trials and uh, tribulations that will happen. But here in verse 16, he turns specifically what, why is this going to be such an issue this coming weekend? A little while. This tiny little bit of time. And you're going to see me no longer. And then a little while, (laughs) you're going to see me again. And the disciples are obviously confused. I mean, Jesus, we know that you speak in riddles. We know that you speak in parables so the people don't understand. We've spent the last three years asking you, what in the world do you mean? And you get the impression that sometimes they get maybe a little bit tired or maybe even a little embarrassed. But they're talking amongst themselves. What do you think he meant? A little while and he's going to be gone and a little while he's going to be back. What do you think he meant? What do you, I mean, is this, now you see me, now you don't, now you don't, now you do. What, is he capricious? Is he playing a prank on us? What does he mean by this? And Jesus, understanding their confusion, he crafted it on purpose, really explains to them and says, look, what's happening is going to be this. Now, again, he's speaking figuratively. He's intentionally not giving them the details. And the reality of the matter is a good thing. If he had told these men what their lives would be like for the rest of them, they never would have had the courage to live them. Oh, by the way, I'm going to die and then be resurrected. I'm going to send to glory. And then the church is going to be in your hands. And then they're all going to be martyred terribly. They're going to kill you and disembowel you and ship your parts all over the planet. And then people are going to worship your bones. It's a terrible life. I'm so sorry. But instead, he explains to them figuratively, I'm going to be here for a time. I'm going to be here with you for just a handful of more hours, and then I'm going to die. I'm going to be murdered unjustly. It's going to be unfair. And I'm going to stay dead for a time, and then life's going to be really bad. And you want to talk about great emotional duress. Having built your entire life around one man and then having him be murdered in front of you. Oh no, what do I do? But don't worry. A short time later, you're going to see me again. I'll be here and ultimately I will ascend to the Father. I won't be with you uh, anymore and things will be okay. He's explaining to them ultimately the ascension, him passing into glory, residing in heaven physically where he does now. He's physically seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where his body resides. And because of that, things are going to be different for the people of God. And this is ultimately where he turns, again, like a doctor helping set their expectations. Why is it going to be a good thing that Jesus is not physically with us now? Why is it going to be a good thing that Jesus sends his spirit and he's not physically in our midst? Why is it a good thing that we do not see him anymore? Why is it a good thing that we don't see him even in the middle of trials and difficulties? Why is it a good thing that we do not see him even while the world hates us? Why is it a good thing? We're going to see he he provides kind of four consequences that we're going to look at. There's more in here. I don't have the time to do it, but four consequences that we're going to highlight. 
Looking at verse 19, Jesus knows what they're asking. He says, and look, a little while you're going to see me. Okay, blah, blah, blah. 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. No joke. You think the Lord of life was just murdered on a cross by the Romans? I mean, Rome is powerful, but they never would have guessed. They think he'd be able to murder, the, you know, Rome would be able to murder the Lord of life. Yeah, you're going to weep. Yeah, you're going to mourn because you're expecting that you're next. The world's going to be excited about it. But the transition, and this is where the whole passage turns, the second half of verse 20, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And he uses an illustration that, as a single man, is an interesting one, but one that uh, any uh, married man with children would understand quite readily. When a woman is giving birth, she is quite sorrowful about labor. It's all-encompassing. It can be quite traumatic, and sometimes she can maybe say things she doesn't entirely mean. But miraculously, for many women, at some point along the line later, she's like, you know, I think I want another baby. And the husband, who did not have all of the hormones and all of the endorphins and all of the medicine, goes, are you crazy? And she's like, no, it wasn't that bad. I'd like another child. And he's like, do you remember what it was like? And she's like, it wasn't that bad. And he's like, do you remember what it was? And uh, what was the answer? No, she doesn't. The Lord, in a sweet mercy, makes it that for some amazing reason, women remember the beauty and the joy of the child and somehow managed to forget the vast majority of the labor and delivery. You still remember it, but not the same way. That's his illustration here. And he says, look, it's going to be terrible. You're going to have a really hard time. But oh, by the way, when I pass into glory, you're going to forget all of that. These trials and these difficulties will seem small in comparison to the understanding of what I have accomplished. Joy will be real. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This joy is going to ultimately be a lasting joy. Jesus here, I think, explains a key element of the Christian life, and it is this, that the consequence of his death, resurrection, ascension, and then ultimately glorification, the consequence, when understood properly, is joy. It's a byproduct. Now, interestingly, he's talking about all of this within the context of difficulty. And I'm talking grievous difficulty. I mean, you think Peter, knowing, I mean, just a few short hours, he's going to deny Christ to be able to go back to that promise and say, you know what, there's a joy that's coming that can't be taken away. Oh, I want that joy. I want a joy that can't be taken away. I want a joy that can't be removed from me. I want a joy where I can exist in gladness forever. I want that
And so I asked the question, do you have that? I mean, notice the time in which the season in which Christ is talking about is now. It's the he's ascended, but not yet come back. Because I mean, the next section we're going to talk about is something obviously is not going to happen in heaven. He's talking about this time and recognizing that's actually one of those key elements for evangelism is inviting people to live life with joy. You realize your unbelieving neighbors have no concept of joy. They have fleeting happinesses. They have, oh, I got a new car. I'm happy for until I spill a Coke in it. And then I'm not quite so happy in it. Or it gets dinged in the supermarket. Fleeting moments of pleasure and don't have a sense of lasting joy you see this lasting joy for the people of God is the knowledge that King Jesus has lived and he has died and he has been raised and he has ascended to glory all past tense so those promises are currently present tense so the world will hate me but it will never overcome me So the world may seek to destroy me, but it will never be successful. It cannot destroy me, for I belong to the Lord. For I will do battle with sin, but you know what? I'm going to win. Because Jesus has promised that I will. I will make it to the end, because Christ is king over me and my life. My challenge to you is to seek to live this life of joy that Christ is presenting here and noticing what it's grounded in. It's grounded in his death, his suffering, and his resurrection and the incongruity, the tension that follows after he passes into glory. That we live in a time where he is not with us, he's not in front of us, we don't see him, we don't hear him. Instead, we have his promises, and that is where joy is found. He doesn't stop with joy, though. The same way he says, look, pressure's coming, there's going to be pain that's about to happen, you're going to have this great turmoil, the consequence will be joy, and the joy will be full. But not just that, prayer is going to change. And it's going to change dramatically. Verse 23, in that day, this day that's coming, the day for us is now, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Meaning, Jesus is not going to be in their midst and they don't ask him for stuff. The disciples at this point, you know, if they needed encouragement, they could say, Jesus, give me encouragement. Truly, truly, sorry, in that day you will ask me nothing of me. So we don't go to Jesus to ask him for things. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. So prayer changes. At this point in church history, the disciples, when they wanted to pray, they prayed directly to the Father, and they, in essence, didn't fully know if their prayers would be answered, received, or heard. They didn't know if the Father would like them or not. And when they needed Jesus' help, they had to ask him face to face. Again, not knowing how it would turn out. Instead, we have something different where we go directly to the Father and we go in Jesus' name and we know how it's answered. Well, because we come in his merit. Verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. 
Verse 26, he explains further, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Meaning, when we pray, we don't pray to the Father in Jesus' name and then hope that someone else intercedes on the side for us. We don't have to say, well, maybe this saint will make intercession for us. Maybe we can get Mary to ask Jesus. Maybe we can find this person who is really good and they'll intercede for us. No, instead, we go directly to the Father in Jesus' name, in His ability, in His redemption, and we ask God directly, and we belong there. It's going to be taken up in the Scriptures elsewhere, explained we go in boldness when we pray. When we go into His midst, it's, where we're supposed to be. I do often wonder how much of us, when we pray, have this in our mind, like kind of conceptually, but don't actually kind of really believe what we're talking about. The idea that when we pray, we're taken into the throne room of God, and that's where we belong to be. When we pray, we're doing what we're designed for. We're using the equipment the way it was created to be used. It's like driving a sports car quickly or playing a violin beautifully. It's, it's what it was made to do. It's... We were made to be in His presence. And when we pray, we go in Christ's name, praying to the Father, and we are received. It doesn't stop. I mean, that that right there would be, I mean, that right there alone should be cause for evangelism all over the world. Oh, by the way, you want to come to Christianity? Two things, joy and you get to be in God's presence. Go. That's pretty good. It doesn't stop, though. Verse 29, the disciples. Ah, finally, you're speaking clearly. You're not using parables. We're not confused. Over we get it. We understand it. You're going back to the Father. There's going to be consequences. You're ascending. We get it. We like it. And Jesus answers, <laughs> well, first they ascribe to him all knowledge. Now we know all things, that you know all things. You don't need to question you. This is why we believe you came from God, that they're understanding that Christ is the fountain of all knowledge. They're recognizing that he's omniscient. They're proclaiming his divinity, that everything that's happening is part of his plan. Nothing's surprising him. And notice what his answer is. Do you believe? Implied, I hope you do. Why? Because, behold, look, the hour's coming. Indeed, it's here. And you disciples in front of me are going to be scattered. You're going to be sent to your own homes because when they murder me, you're going to think they're coming after you. You're going to flee like roaches in daylight. And you're going to leave me all alone. 
In fact, I'm going to be on a cross all by myself, and all of you save one, the guy writing this. They're going to be cowards, and you're all going to run away. And it's going to be him and a handful of faithful women. But even then, I won't be alone on the cross. The Father will be with me. And I've said all of this to you for one reason. So that you may have peace. Again, look at just kind of the trifecta of what he's offering. Understand Christianity to be here. It is a life filled with joy that cannot be taken away. A life that is understood to be in the presence of God. And a life that is marked and characterized by peace. Look at 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've won. Past tense. Not even on the cross yet. I mean, how victorious do you have to be? To be like, oh yeah, by the way, I haven't played my trump card yet. I've, I've already won. It's like the point in a card game where you're sitting, like playing spades or something and you're sitting on the ace of spades and king of spades. Game's not over. But I've won. I know. You can't beat me. It's impossible. I have the two best cards in the game. He's doing the same. I've won already. I know. Hasn't happened yet. But the victory is complete and total so that life is filled with joy. It's filled in the presence of the Father and is filled with peace. And I would challenge us maybe to think a couple of things in light of this truth, in light of the way that Christ is explaining the Christian life to be. One is to, if you've been a believer a long time, or you have that testimony like mine that is so wonderfully boring that you don't remember days apart from Christ, praise the Lord, I love that. Be reminded that not everybody feels that way. Like for me, I, I don't know those days of living outside of the pleasure of Christ. I don't remember those days of living under the displeasure of God. But to be reminded that the vast majority of the people in this great country do live that way. They lack joy. They live only in the displeasure of God Almighty and peace is a thing that is far off. Which is why our country spends bajillions of dollars on distractions. Because if we can be distracted, we, we lose that sense of longing for peace. We lose that sense of longing for joy. We forget that we're stuck solely with ourselves. If you remember that this is what life is like outside of Christ, it, it does a couple of things of how you think. One is you're going to show far more patience to your neighbor. Because if they don't have these things, well, of course they're miserable, and of course they're going to act miserably. Any good husband, when his wife is in labor, going to show her a little bit of extra grace, right? I don't like the tone you're using in the middle of labor. No one ever says that. <laughs> well, if they do, they're in real, there's other problems. If you said that in here, I'm so sorry I just called you out. We should talk later. <laughs> but we recognize that, don't we? We're, we're in the middle of difficulty, we're willing to show extra grace. Why? Because we understand they're, they're having a terrible time of it. It hurts. It's hard. They're having a baby. 
with our neighbor, would we not understand similarly? Of course, it hurts. It hard. They don't have Jesus. And they need him. It also is going to change how we evangelize, what we're offering. This life, this Christian life, is a life that has joy, real joy, that ultimately can't be taken away. Ultimately. A life that's filled with peace, real peace, that ultimately cannot be taken away. And even if you as a Christian right now don't feel like you understand those things, I promise you, you have them infinitely more than a person who doesn't know Jesus. In fact, actually, I might suggest these are going to be two of the most effective tools for evangelism that we will have in this town. I mean, you realize this is a town where supposedly everybody's a Christian. I mean, everybody goes to church if they've only been once. They've been to church, but they go. They don't know the church's name or their pastor's name, but they go in theory. We realize the thing is, is offering an understanding of what Christianity is. It's at its core a changed life, a new life, a, a different life because of the cross of Christ. It's not freed of tribulation. It's not freed of difficulty. It's not freed of sorrow. In fact, actually, it offers the best explanation for those things. Why is there going to be tribulation? Because it's a world that's at war with God. Oh, of course it's going to have tribulation. You're fighting against deity. He's going to win. Well, of course you have trials and tribulations. It's a world that is at slavery to the devil. It belongs to him. He's using it for the destruction of the image of God, of course. But you want peace. You want to be with God. You want to know him. You want to be able to pray to him. You want to have joy. Come to this life. It's the only way to have those things. That is an effective tool of evangelism. And then lastly is to seek to cultivate that ourselves. You know, joy, this understanding of prayer, living in the Father's presence, and peace are attributes that may actually be cultivated. You may build them, you may increase them, you may grow them. As you seek to understand the promises of Christ, as you seek to look at the world through the lens of the cross, as you seek to recommit yourself to the promises of God. But so many of these are the Spirit working in us as we actively work to cultivate them. Will I fight against God or will I... Submit myself to him. Will I run my mouth this day? Or will I be a peacemaker who zips it just that one extra time? I mean, I know I had a bad day. I know I'm a little cantankerous. Do I have to share that? Do I have to spread it? Do I have to infect others? Or will these promises that are found true only in Christ, will they bear fruit in me and then be contagious to others? In fact, actually, this is the mission of this church. I'm actually preaching our mission statement, though indirectly. Gather and perfect the saints. 
And you'll notice one of my applications here of how you're gathering and perfecting. You gather the saints by spreading the story of what Christ is doing and the promises that are in Christ and what is accomplished at the cross. And the perfecting of the saints by laboring intentionally to build those attributes in us and the power of the Spirit that we might grow in our joy and we might grow in our peace and we might grow in prayer. In living in the Father's presence. Why? Because this is the preparation for heaven. This is the preparation for the, the life to come. It's preparation for death. Because on the other side of that great mystery, that is where we find perfect joy and perfect peace. And prayer changes entirely then. May it be that we as God's people in this time, the time he's speaking about, the time between the ascension and the second coming, may we be filled with joy and found in prayer and filled with peace. So that as we think about life from those perspectives, when we know God gives, there's going to be pressure There's going to be pain that's coming. There's going to be trial. There's going to be tribulation and difficulty. It will not crush us. Because we know what the ultimate answers are in Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, supremely complicated passage. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that we do have the consequences of the salvation of Jesus. We ask that you would work them in us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.